electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC, Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber. Mike Santoli. Kramer has the morning off. Dow futures red, but any bounce would make it four straight days of gains. First time in a couple of months. Uh, durables were a miss across the board. And with that, 10-year goes to 271. That's the lowest since April 14th. Our roadmap begins with uh, volatility. The broader market's on track for their worst start to the year in more than half a century. Plus, Bill Ackman tweets why he believes higher short-term rates, not bad for stocks. And we'll be talking the pandemic effect on Apple, the company's iPhone development schedule reportedly taking a hit due to lockdowns in China. We will start with the ongoing market volatility a day after yesterday's big rebound for the Dow, coming off its third straight day of gains. But according to Dow Jones market data, the S&P and the Dow are now on track for their worst first 100 trading days since 1970. And for the Nasdaq 100, uh, the worst ever Interesting, some work by Bespoke yesterday, uh, Mike, looking at uh, three months following a 30% NASDAQ drawdown. You're up three months later, five of six times. Yes. So uh, well, there haven't been that many of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, all of the stats that you can run based on the cadence of the losses this year tend to get you toward that position where, well, markets go up over time. So if you have that deep a hole, unless... It's 2001-2, unless it's 2008-9. That's essentially the big exceptions that you either put aside or you feel like, you know, are a threat to repeat. Um, so, yeah, mean reversion works uh, at some point. Uh, something about the, the rhythm of this year, the fact that it was a peak, uh, ultimate peak of this bull market on January 3rd, right? So that's why the first 100 days of the year end up looking that bad. If I'm looking at signals uh, in terms of is it enough, um, it's, it's certainly never clear but you absolutely have seen a little more sign of differentiation in the market. Yesterday, Snap didn't swamp the entire NASDAQ. Um, you, you certainly didn't swamp the entire market. For whatever reason, the S&P has refused to close below 3,900, even though we've been down there for the last nine sessions. Uh, we'll see if that matters in the long term. Obviously, the valuation work has been done. Clearly, though, the prevailing fear has shifted toward the growth scare rather than uh, inflation overheat. And so that they're both still there, but the interplay has shifted toward growth. All right. I want—I don't want to say macro desks are getting more constructive necessarily, but I did notice um, that, for example, Stiefel says recession not their case yeah. for this year, possibly next year. Today it's Evercore, no recession with a potential 22% bounce in the S&P. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing about recessions is we know the ingredients, you know the kind of vector of all the variables that you that usually are in place before you get there. And typically you get a scare before you get to one. Now, what's typical? Does it matter what's typical? Typically you get at least one 10% correction before the market goes down 20% for the first time, right? So you can't guarantee any of these things, but it absolutely is true that employment being how it is, claims have not gone up, even credit spreads, as much as they've widened out, don't really clearly signal recession. So I think you can say uh, it's a wait and see. Consumer sentiment looks awful, but the market has 
uh, has, you know, largely, I mean, look, the retail numbers are very tough to navigate when it comes to this. Because you have Dix down 50% going into the print. The guy down still brings the stock down. Best Buy down almost 50% going in. Guy down managed to rally on it. So it's super hard to handicap exactly what's priced in. Meanwhile, though, the mega, mega cap tech names are all down more than the certainly the S&P, yeah. even though they make up a good amount of it. Not to mention, of course, the Nasdaq 100. I mean, Apple looks good, only down 21 percent. We obviously saw significant uh, weakness in Alphabet yesterday on concerns about advertising spend from that snap update, so to speak. Not to mention Meta. Amazon has had more than its share of concerns uh, that we've talked a great deal about. But you can take a look there at the losses. I mean, those numbers yeah. are, are staggering. And they are obviously very widely and well-held. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, they... It's, it's a reason that they've underperformed, um, you know, the average stock, really, the equal weighted, well, let's put it this way, the equal weighted S&P 500, which is something you can own, by the way. It's not just some abstraction out there. Right. Um, they have underperformed. But if you talk about the stocks that are now below pre-pandemic levels, the NASDAQ 100 is not. Mm-hmm. It still has room to get back there. Uh, but Strategus has a whole list of major stocks that are down below pre-pandemic levels. And topping the list, Amazon, Meta. Um, you know, so so clearly not all of them. Apple, Microsoft, not down there. And nobody says you have to get down there. Earnings are up over the last two and a half years. Uh, but it does tell you that uh, the perception is that's where you still have selling potential. Um, you know, the leaders of a bull market tend not to be the leaders to, in the next upturn. Right. So that's the other thing that hangs over the group a little bit. Right. Yeah, it's a great place to bring in Brent Thilt to talk about this tech valuations and the decline those stocks are seeing this year. Brent believes there is still 20% downside potential from current levels. Joining us, as we said, Jeffries, Brent Thill. I wonder, Brent, good to have you, whether or not Snap is company specific and why you think in aggregate more of these companies need to be admitting to economic weakness. Yeah, good morning, Carl. I think Snap is not Snap's specific. We think it's an industry-wide ad trend. Uh, companies uh, are, are continuing to see advertising go is the first thing that you see in an economic downturn. So it's not surprising to see how bad the result was. Uh, and, and again, five weeks left in the quarter to say they're going to be underneath the guidance ranges is pretty telling, right? That we, we rarely see that. And I think that tells you how bad it is. And we think it's across the board. We don't think this is SNAP specific. We're seeing in all the indicators that we, we cover. Uh, we've had a couple uh, pieces of good news with Intuit and ServiceNow. Intuit saying, you know, they're not seeing it yet. They obviously live in the world of tax and small business. Small businesses aren't going to turn off Intuit. So we think that's more defensive. But I, I still think that we have the worst to come as it relates to companies still have to admit to the fundamental weakness uh, that they're going to see. We're seeing it in consumer internet. And that tends yep. to be immediate. Software tends Brent, to lag. And I think we'll see that later in the year. Well, you said those indicators. Give us a sense as to what they are, what you're watching and why you feel that they are uh, they are worthwhile predictors of what's coming. Well, we spend a lot of time in the expert now. We're talking to system integrators and, and you know, everyone on the supply chain. Uh, and I think what we're seeing is uh, we're seeing a, a, a pause. We're seeing a concern. I was with a, a CEO of a software company the other day that was going to upgrade his workday system and said, I'm not going to do any more based on everything that we're seeing. We're not going to put in a $20 million implementation of software uh, based on uncertainty in the, in the environment. So I, I think that we're seeing uh, the checks not as good as we'd like to see. Uh, 
on the out. Uh, and again, when you look at the consumer data, the consumer data, whether it was Walmart, Target, go through, you see it with Snap, those are indications that the consumers we weakening faster. That then has a ripple effect of those companies implementing and buying technology. We're hearing Lyft on a hiring freeze. We're hearing Uber slow things down. You, you look everywhere, you look, these are, these are data points that suggest, are they gonna buy more technology? And I think the answer is right now is, uh, we're coming off a pandemic full forward. It, you know, we, we use the example, it's like going to Costco. You bring your Suburban, you load up food and you have to digest. And we had a massive adoption of tech in the last uh, in the last year and a half, so uh, we're we're not we're not super bearish, and we've had seven straight weeks of of pain, and and it's a fifteen of uh, on on a one scale of one to ten of pain right now among our clients, but seven straight weeks of a decline, at some point it's so bearish, it, it starts to become bullish because there's no long only demand. This is hedge funds that are trading against each other. There's no one uh, on the long only community on our desk that is 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 committing to buying. And so we have to see companies uh, effectively, I think, come out and say, we're seeing it. I acknowledge the economic environment. And that's when the big institutional long onlys want to buy these stocks. And that's probably sometime you know, in the summer, maybe in the fall. Mm -hmm. Brent, you're also focused on possible valuation floors uh, put in by M&A activity. And where does that come in in terms of have the smaller mid-cap software names gotten to that level yet, or is that still a downside target? Yeah, they're there. The small and mid-caps are there. Small cap is definitely there. So we're at you know four to five times forward revenue. If you look at the average takeout so far year to date, it's nine times. We talk about a range is our is our favorite convenience store, 7-Eleven, uh, seven to eleven times forward revenue. You look at uh, you look at the multiples, and we're now below that. And now you've seen you know the Broadcom chatter for VMware. You saw. Uh, you know, total Bravo with SailPoint and Anaplan. I think you're going to see a lot of uh, uh, private equity and strategic M&A that happens uh, now. You have a lot of companies that have been quiet, haven't done M&A for a while. We expect them to come back to the market. Uh, so that's going to probably be the first sign. Uh, and then the second thing that our clients want to see is just numbers cut and acknowledge the environment is, is softening. And that will get, that will release the ability for, for clients to come back and want to buy. Uh, Brent, we're going to see how this migrates from some of the smaller players, as you point out, to, to mega cap uh, in the coming weeks. Appreciate that. Uh, thanks for starting us off today. Uh, Brent Phil joining us uh, from Jefferies. Still to come this morning, Exxon holding its annual shareholder meeting later today. We're going to tell you what to expect uh, with the shares up a little bit. You can see pre-market. Uh, take a look at the futures, as we said, uh, coming off of that upside reversal for the Dow, but the Nasdaq still at the lowest level since November of 2020. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Mortgage rates turning lower for the second straight week, though not enough to boost demand for either new purchase loans or refinancing. Our Diana Olick is back at CNBC HQ. She has a deep dive into how market conditions right now are affecting the cost of a home. Diana. Well, David, this morning's drop in mortgage demand comes after a report yesterday showing a far wider than expected drop in sales of newly built homes. So I want to take a step back and show you why this quick reversal in what was such a red hot housing market, the quick and sharp jump in mortgage rates, along with huge gains in home prices, simply pricing buyers out. So take a look. I want to show you what happens really to a $300,000 house just in the last three years. So in May of 2019, with 20% down on a 30-year fixed, and then 4.33%, the monthly payment was $1,192. And that's not including insurance or property taxes. Then you see that mortgage rates uh, fell in the next year, even though the price of a home went up to 5%. They started to fall at the start of the pandemic. So the monthly payment, well, take a look at that. It actually dropped. Then you go to 2021, where you see that home prices were up 15%. Again, the 30-year fixed rate drops to 3.15%. The, the payment really up just about $100, and then comes the real hit. You see in 2022, home prices go up 21%, but the real change here is that you see the 30-year fixed at about 5.5%. That's when you really get that big kick in that monthly payment. It's up almost $800 more than that same $300,000 house was back in 2019. So we are seeing more supply come onto the market now, and that's helping a little bit, but that supply is nowhere near where it needs to be, and it's also not on the low end of the market, which is where so many of those first-time buyers are. David? Well, Diana, you know, it's interesting, the Journal today writing about mortgage lenders under pressure, also talking about the Fed focused on housing and how to try to cool things off. Uh, Is there a number when it comes to the 30-year fix, for example, that really does sort of show itself through history to be the breaking point for many people when they're looking for a new home? Well, that's really going to depend on the price at that point. I mean, look, when I bought my first apartment, it was up at 9%, and I thought that was a great deal because home prices were far lower. But when you look at where prices are today, and then you start, I think it was that 5% inflection point that we really started to see the buyers pull back. That's what the real estate agents are telling me, and that's what some of the buyers and even sellers were saying, that when that rate went over 5%, given how high the prices are today, really, that was the inflection point. Uh, Diana, we'll talk later this morning maybe about toll and what they're saying about uh, demand this morning. I appreciate that, Diana Olick. Coming up in the next hour, don't miss Sarah Eisen's interview with Salesforce's Mark Benioff, live from Davos, as we get another look here at Futures and Squawk on the Street continues on this Wednesday. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, 
positively FedEx. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. It's a tough day uh, in the United States and, in fact, all around the world as we've gotten comments and sympathies from the likes of uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky, uh, even the Pope today, talking about uh, the devastating events in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, The New York Stock Exchange in a few moments is going to extend its deepest sympathies to those affected in remembrance of the lives lost and the families impacted by that event. Uh, It is the worst school shooting in nearly a decade in this country, has obviously introduced once again a discussion about uh, gun rights, school safety, uh, and gun safety uh, in this country in a situation that is almost unique uh, around the world. Let's get that moment of silence. It's ExxonMobil's annual meeting today. Of course, its shareholders may be in a fairly good move given the uh, 62% gain in the stock over the last 12 months. Of course, we've talked a great deal about uh, the energy sector outperforming, increasing its what was minuscule weighting overall in the S&P. It was uh, roughly a year ago, of course, that we got even then what was uh, shocking uh, news in terms of our proxy fight uh, at ExxonMobil. Remember the tiny activist firm of Engine One that few of us had ever heard of succeeded in seating three of the four board members that it had nominated for Exxon's board. It was uh, at the end of a, a, a fairly brutal fight between the company and Engine One and obviously changed the composition of a board that, by the way, had already changed, remember, with the addition of the likes of, for example, Jeffrey Ubbin and Mike Angelakis only a a few months prior uh, to that. Uh, But Exxon has also changed a lot during the last year. And in fact, as we've told our viewers many times and will again over these next intervening weeks on June 23rd, we're going to have really what we believe is a a very meaningful look inside this company uh, at this crossroads uh, as it sort of tries to deal with the coming energy transition and how it's going about doing that. But um, I've had an opportunity, of course, in the, in the course of reporting that documentary to talk to Darren Woods, the company's CEO, and to talk to Jeff Oven, one of its directors as well. And I did have an opportunity to ask them when they look back on that proxy fight and the intervening year, what they've learned. I think one of the things we learned as we were going through that proxy fight, had outside advisors come in, is there's a lot of work that we're doing that we're not talking about. People don't have a good understanding of some of the approaches that we're taking, the whys behind the work and the activity. Uh, We've become much more uh, transparent. We've become, uh, we talk a lot more about what we're planning on doing and, and where we're trying to take the company so that people can get an idea of how we expect to manage this business as we move into this uncertain future. Darren has been tremendous in the last year. It was easy for him to fix that because he's a smart, capable guy that, that, that really, he just, he just wasn't aware enough to know that he should be uh, more involved with his shareholders. 
now he is. I, I think everybody's benefiting from a, a room that's got more new thinkers. That's why it's the best board I've ever been on in terms of just the aperture for change and you know thinking about the business in, in a completely different way. Yeah, that, uh, those board meetings have to be interesting with the likes of Karsner as well, a, a very strong environmentalist, uh, but Greg Goff and Kaiser Hatella also were added, of course, to the board at that time, and they got Angelakis and Ubbin, Darren Woods navigating it all, as, of course, they really try to navigate and make the key decisions about how they want to position the company for um, a less carbon-intensive future, and, and that is going to be certainly something that we focus on. Uh, when you first get to see uh, our documentary. Less than a month from now, Mike. But, of course, we talk a lot about the stock itself sure. for obvious reasons, given the strength of energy versus almost everything else of late. But it also so uh, kind of crystallizes what's happening with the industry, where there's this massive cultural shift that culminates just at the moment when the criticism turns to why you're producing more. Yes. I mean, not that it was ever either or, right? I mean, it wasn't like Exxon was going to stop. Uh, altogether, but it, it is interesting. And, you know, the stock being in favor, you know, the dividend yields is as low as it's been just about in the last decade, just because obviously people love the story and dividends can go up over time with this kind of cash flow. Uh, but it just shows you way, way back in favor for what they're doing now. Yes. It's not clear that the investor base wants them to do anything different yet. And that is a great point. I think you're, you're dead on. It's something we also discuss as well, which is where do your shareholders really want you to go? Because we know, we talk about this all the time, right now they're very focused on return of capital, whether it's in higher dividends or share buybacks, not as interested really in watching the company actually put more money into the ground to increase production dramatically. At the same time, the question, of course, becomes the allocation that they're making. The company's already said $15 billion over the next six years to lower carbon, to let's call it low carbon solutions. Uh, but how much more? You know, how much more? And how much cash flow is the other key question. Yeah. Because they're gushing cash flow right now, as is Chevron, as are many of these companies with oil where it is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, meanwhile, CapEx in the oil sector uh, is running, I think we said yesterday, at a 30% annual rate in Q2. So we'd like to see more of that, although uh, there's obviously the, the global production picture to think about. Uh, Total CEO today says Russia's having trouble unloading their crude. Uh, and the EU says they think they're one official at least confident that by the time of the next meeting they can get past some of Hungary's concerns and come to some agreement on a Russian oil ban but the the global production picture is really just the, the, that's the puzzle yeah uh, and I'm looking here because we did have Total as well buying that stake in a US wind and solar company that is not the road that Exxon has chosen nor Chevron they don't feel that their core competency is in these alternative energies it's much more about carbon capture biofuels and hydrogen being the future for them by the way, Nat Gas today uh, crosses nine for the first time since 2008. Uh, something to think about uh, as we look at diesel inventories on the East Coast and all around the country. Uh, and of course, the prospect of uh, trying to keep homes heated uh, later in the winter. There's the opening bell and the CNBC real-time exchange at the big board. It's Major League Pickleball kicking off its first team competition this year. At the NASDAQ, it's Carry Group specializing in vehicle glass repair. So we'll keep our eye on retail to start. We mentioned the Dicks uh, slashing the guide. By the way, their new range is entirely below the prior range. They see 915 to 1170. Prior was 1170 to 1310. But Nordstrom, yeah. in a signal maybe, Mike, that the high end is holding up on a relative basis? It seems that way. High end or at least, you know, 
dressier clothing, different categories of clothing, um, off of a probably low expectation, certainly outperform. You know, people are also pointing to Toll Brothers in the home building space to say that they saw less uh, softening of demand than other areas. That is also on the high end. Um, the unpredictability of how these stocks are going to react, right? They all are pretty much all the chain stores are single digit. PEs, if you believe the E's, and the street doesn't really believe the E's because you have these guide downs. Um, but they're also small. I mean, I think that's worth keeping in mind. So last week we hear from Walmart, Target, uh, you know, those two are 400 plus billion together in market cap. Costco's another 200 billion. If you do Dick's, Abercrombie, Best Buy, Nordstrom, uh, Ralph Lauren, and Gap all together are $36 billion. So they're relatively small, huge kind of swings in, in, the, uh, in the outlook. Nothing quite really affects the, the, the general picture of consumerist capacity spend, shifting the mix. Everyone was sort of caught off balance with inventories. What's fascinating to me is that once we got the target numbers and they said, nobody's buying bicycles, nobody's buying the hard stuff. Walmart said groceries taking up too much of the spend. And then yet Dick still had downside because, you know, you would have thought the expectations would have come down enough. But we'll see how it settles out. Yeah. Uh, by the way, inventories uh, at Dick's up 404 Pretty much in the neighborhood of uh, A&F and Target, not a little bit uh, more extreme than Walmart's 24. But Eric Nordstrom did talk about uh, the degree to which inventories and that so-called bullwhip effect is uh, is affecting all of retail. Take a listen. We felt uh, we were hurt last year from some access to inventory and not having a, a pack and hold inventory to uh, to lean upon. Uh, we've been building that uh, out double to triple the size we had uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, and we feel good about that, that that's, uh, there's still a lot of bumpiness out there in, in supply chain. We're, we're certainly not immune to that. Uh, so having that pack and hold inventory, uh, we feel good about. By the way, Urban's the other story. Uh, 33 misses 43, revenue was a slight miss. Uh, and they did talk about some elevated costs. And then David, Amazon, I think it was the information yesterday who put a number on the number of warehouses they're seeking to unload somewhere in the neighborhood of 14, uh, as clearly you don't need as much. No, it's kind of shocking in a way, given how much money uh, was put into Amazon increasing its um, its capacity overall, uh, and not to mention hundreds and hundreds of thousands of employees the company added uh, from the pandemic on. But that is clearly reversed. Um, as has the stock price a little bit, it's up $3.56, not much, but nonetheless, uh, Amazon up right around that trillion dollar market value. Obviously, still down 37 plus percent for the year, as you can see right there. Uh, guys, wanted to mention Wendy's stock up uh, 10 percent. Uh, had hoped I might have a little more to add to this uh, 13D filing we got yesterday from Tryon. I don't, but I'll tell you what it said, uh, which is basically that they are... Um, and have advised the board that uh, they intend to explore and evaluate the possibility of uh, participating along or with uh, uh, alone or with third parties in a potential transaction that they say would enhance shareholder value, uh, that it could be an acquisition or a business combination of some kind. Um, we'll see. Uh, you know, I would say, uh, note, Tryon obviously has been on the board. They've owned this stock from, since 05. So they've had a long history with the company. They know it very, very well. Uh, it is already levered too, so you know any. You wouldn't expect there to be that much 
ability to perhaps lever that much more for a so-called traditional LBO, Mike, but don't have a lot more to share there. Obviously, the stock is responding. We got the news after the bell yesterday. I mean, there's different brands in there. You know, as you know, you can sort of recombine or separate or whatever, whatever uh, you might think. But I agree. I mean, given how much there is in the way of retail, restaurant, just super dirt tree, cheap, unlevered stuff, you would think a private equity would find its way elsewhere before it's something like a Wendy's. Yeah. Uh, and for trying itself, not typically in their playbook. No. You know, Elliott has really transitioned to some extent to being much more about, frankly, transactions and buying companies, at least of late, than even the activism component. But that's not been the case for Tryon. They are yeah. known, of course, as an activist. And again, they've been a part of this company for a very long time. So they do know plenty. It's not clear, though, what they perhaps feel that Wendy's is not doing that could otherwise be done. I was going to mention uh, Intuit, you know, Brentdale mentioned something. It's up 2%. Um, not necessarily a huge move, given the fact that it's been cut in half coming into it. But some indications that the, the bigger, more reliable software names, the entrenched ones, the ones that, you know, they basically got massively, uh, you know, highly valued because of predictability are more or less paying off on that. And, uh, you know, seems like it's some differentiation going on right there. So up 2% in service now as well uh, is one of the uh, early leaders in the S&P up 3%. Yeah, some decent action to start in enterprise software. Intuit, by the way, does raise their guide, yeah. uh, for even though they're heading into the final quarter of their fiscal year, but they see revenue down 8 to 9, uh, streets minus 17. Um, we should note a lot, of that, a lot of tweet activity from managers last 24 hours, Michael Burry and Bill Ackman talking about inflation being out of control, Fed's got to get more aggressive, which is interesting because 10-year break-evens now at a three-month low, you got the 10-year back to 272, durables miss, mortgage originations, uh, J.D. Power with some uh, forecasts for auto sales in May down 20 year-on-year. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, we'll see whether or not this was as indicative of a an extreme as it was back in 2020. Exactly. It felt like a tweet from March or April uh, in the sense of that real, that, that sense of things are running out of control and the Fed needs to have radical action. But what has happened, you know, so far this year, you know, Diana talking about mortgage rates went from three to five and a quarter. Uh, new home sales are down 25 percent. Um, you know, investment grade yields up two and a quarter to four and a half. High yield four to eight. I mean, it's it's already the tightening is here. Which uh, is so what? what does the Fed need to do? You right. know, the Nasdaq's down 30, S&P multiples from 22 to 16. Which is why, I mean, normally Fed minutes get a, a lot of attention, but are they going to read hawkish yeah. since they were said those minutes were, were taken before we got a lot of this macro and, and micro weakness? Right, and before the guidance that they've previously given has taken hold to such a degree in the markets themselves. So, look, there's always can be a wild card in the guidance, in the minutes. We read them too closely. <laughs> You know, you sort of comb it for nuance, but I, I agree. What, what's been said since then, you know, with Bostic at the Atlanta Fed opening the door to saying September is not so sure in terms of a hike, or at least the magnitude of it, uh, you know, that seems fresher and something the market's taken to heart. Um, taking a look here at uh, social media, well, I don't even know what you're calling Yeah, social media stocks. Uh, Snap is up uh, about 5% after that historic loss yesterday somewhat 41, 42 percent, I think, is where we ended on the day uh, down, uh, maybe even 43 percent. And obviously, as we've noted, uh, so many other companies, uh, stocks coming along with it, who rely on advertising. You heard from Brent Thill at the top of the program as well, who was fairly negative, at, at least based on what he called his indicators in terms of the checks that they do. Uh, I would also note shares of Twitter are up about 2.3 percent. 
right around maybe a little bit higher now than, than Elon Musk's purchase price when he bought that large stake that started his quick road to actually making an acquisition um, offer for the company that was accepted at 5420. We all know what's happened since then. I say 5420, you can do the math and look at the enormous spread to that purchase price. Yesterday, you know, Mike, you and I were talking, I detailed many of the reasons why he is obligated to that in terms of the contract. It's one thing I didn't mention, I have in the past, which at least is seen as some risk, although a small one, which is, you know, Morgan Stanley leading the financing. Could they somehow try to say no? Uh, we've seen it occasionally. We saw it during, the, you know, April, uh, May of 2020. We saw it during the financial crisis here. It seems highly, highly unlikely uh, that that would be the case uh, in terms of Morgan Stanley's role here in providing uh, uh, what is roughly $12.5 billion in financing. Remember, there's also his equity check, large one. There's also the margin loan, which he's greatly reduced with the equity he's bringing in from other partners, such as Larry Ellison. Not to mention, I mean, Morgan Stanley syndicated the loan. They're down to 27% of it. It's a pretty good-looking loan, too. You got a $6.5 billion term loan that's LIBOR plus 475. You got a secured bridge of $3 billion, LIBOR plus 675, that ticks up by 50 basis points. I think it's every month after the first three months, uh, if they don't pay it back by issuing bonds. You got $3 billion in unsecured bridge. It's LIBOR plus 1,000. Morgan Stanley may be pretty happy with that paper, and again, they have already syndicated much of it. So highly unlikely, but at least something that many investors who are playing this are keeping an eye on as one other risk. Uh, that would be litigated in New York court, by the way, although you'd assume that if it did take place, it would be because of a MAC that was asserted by, by Musk. That would be in Delaware court, and then you'd follow with New York. Again, all of this highly unlikely to occur. What's much more likely to occur is that Twitter eventually sues them if they have to to say, you got to make good on your deal. Right. By the way, as for Tesla shares, we did get to a 49% drawdown yesterday. Elon Musk now out of the $200 billion net worth club. Uh, but we'll keep an eye on what China deliveries look like in the quarter and what, what macro interest is among consumers who are shopping for cars, uh, ICE and EV. Uh, we should mention NVIDIA trading not too badly ahead of the print tonight. Um, a lot of confusing cross currents and chips mike you yeah. got gaming week but there's data center and uh, crypto mining's crypto, down yeah. um, but uh, it, it, a lot of it'll be interesting to see whether or not the inventory shift we've seen in retail yes. makes its way to chips for sure and you know over the course of this with nvidia which by the way that stock over the last year is just mirrored Tesla to a phenomenal degree. It might be partially a fluke, but uh, it's also down. It's not 52% from its high. NVIDIA is right now. Um, it's now kind of back in the zone of relatively normal growth stock valuations, right? It had forever retained this super premium um, when it was in that hyper growth phase. And now, you know, if, you, if the numbers are going to hold in terms of forward estimates, it's under 30 times earnings. And so it's, it's a different type of investor that looks at that. It's, un, it's not like you need breakneck fundamental momentum necessarily to make that work. But yeah, very interesting to hear what they have to say. They're, they're kind of a category of their own within semis in a way. So that's why it's not you know, something that we could read the clues from Micron or something else. Right. And, um, and of course, a much, a much broader story would be Apple, yeah. uh, which is uh, just south of 140, uh, some argue a critical level. This Nikkei headline again today, iPhone production uh, could be at risk of distribution delays yeah. in China because of lockdowns. Uh, and then this report yesterday from Ming-Chi Kuo that 
Maybe they move AirPod production to Vietnam, which would, which I was once told um, would be very difficult. This is several years ago. Yeah. Well, you because, visited the country. Because of the, the distribution problems and no deep water ports, the sort of structural issues that Vietnam has in production. That's, they can do apparel very well. It's harder to get people to come in and, and make chips or assemble uh, electronics. Uh, but that definitely got some, it would be a huge deal if that came to pass. Is there anything that's changed, Carl, that you're aware of over the last couple of years that would allow them to potentially only that, start that production? Only that the conventional wisdom has shifted to Vietnam being a net winner of China trade disputes, right? And, and certainly now ex accelerated by the lockdown complication. Yeah. They have, they've leveraged that better than some, I think, are, would have thought a few years ago. Uh, I mean, just overall market was going to, you know, make note, trying for some traction again. I mean, yesterday you did have this kind of grinding comeback in the uh, in the indexes. I mentioned that 3,900 level for a couple of weeks. Been talking about 3,800 to 3,900. A lot of eyes on that area as potential downside targets before we got there. We're we well above uh, 4,100. And that seems to be where a little bit of the selling momentum is, uh, has dried up. We'll see if that matters. This is a strong seasonal week. People thought we could get some interest into month end, into rotation, back into equities. Yesterday, very defensive look. You wouldn't deny that it was kind of utilities and, and, and staples in healthcare that was uh, driving things. But, you know, worth noting that um, it doesn't seem as if this is kind of a uh, you know, we're going to open and, uh, and the sellers swamp the market. That said, even though it's sort of a mixed market for the moment, it is being led by energy, yeah. uh, up by more than 1%. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Carl. Uh, important thing about today is growth is back a little bit here. And I think this is based on the idea that with the weak data we've been seeing, uh, the Fed might take a little bit of a pause further on down the road. We haven't heard about that attitude in a long time. But just take a look. It's Growth is doing better here. So not just uh, energy, which is somewhat cyclical, but tech's doing uh, okay. Uh, banks are doing okay. Um, industrials, consumer staples are lagging a little bit. So the less defensive names are, are not doing as well. But that's certainly a very good sign. I think it's also good that the two big growth stocks uh, or companies that are associated with high-end consumer, I should say, Toll Brothers and Nordstrom, had generally positive comments overall uh, on the high end. So we're seeing the home builders come back. And remember, they were the first sector that kind of had a downturn uh, in the beginning of January, uh, and many of them are 30% off. But uh, today, uh, the home builders are uh, moving to the upside. Travel and leisure stocks are also bouncing back a little bit, if you could put that up for me, uh, after being down rather dramatically, some of them right near uh, 52 weeks. Lows. So those two sectors that are doing a little bit better. I think a key point about what we're seeing here is you don't need a recession to have margin compression. And that's a major problem for the market right now. So remember the reasons that we had this big move up in corporate profit margins in 2022 and 21 last year. Uh, we had corporate margins at 13% at one point, 13.5% in the second quarter of 2021. That's been coming down. Those are record profit margins. The historic average is 9 to 11%. Corporate America made a lot of money last year because as the revenues came back, when the economy came back, they were able to capture more of the profits that went to the bottom line by uh, cost savings that they had implemented during the great during the uh, decline that we saw during COVID. So that is now starting to moderate. And I would not be surprised to see an 11% handle uh, on profit 
profit margins. Remember the historic average. These are very unusual numbers you're looking at. Historically, in the last 10 years, profit margins have been 9%, 10%, 11%. If you put up the next one, you'll see the average for the second quarter has been about 11% for a long, long time. So now the fact that we're getting 13%, there's the average for the last several years. The fact that we've had 13.5% is very unusual. We're going back more towards the norm for profit margins. And of course, that's putting some pressure on the stock market. If it helped, if it helped juice the market, going the other direct, in one direction, going down would be some pressure on the market. That would make some sense here. So uh, the bottom line is it looks like growth is replacing inflation as the main worry of the market here. So uh, it is quite remarkable to hear the low and mid-income consumer getting uh, hit by inflation, Walmart and Target, and then here uh, the higher end is holding up still pretty well from Nordstrom and Toll Brothers, but that is going to change. If the market continues to decline, don't kid yourself, the wealth effect will affect the wealthy for sure. They'll feel less confident uh, as well. So they'll definitely be a wealth impact if the market keeps dropping. So when is the bottom? That's the big debate. Here's the source of the problem. 10% earnings growth for the S&P 500. I have noted this for a, several weeks now. It's not moving. And 10% for 2023. These are not going down appreciably because energy estimates keep going up. Many feel that the market is wrong, that the analysts are wrong here, and that the market is going to have to go practically to zero for earnings growth. If you think there's a we're going to have no growth at all, then the market's probably still 10% overvalued. Take 10% for the S&P 500, and that's how you get to these 3,400, 3,500 numbers that a lot of strategists are showing up on our air about. A lot of people are starting to assume very little, if any, real earnings growth down the road. So uh, if you take a look uh, on where we are right now, what are we at, 3,900? 3, 30, just above 3,900. Carl, 3,900 was the low last uh, Wednesday, I believe. So we're holding up, and I think one of the reasons is clearly some hope here uh, that the Fed may moderate a little further on. We're going to get, by the way, the minutes today. And I think that's going to be a bit of a problem because that's backward looking numbers. We've had a whole bunch of weak data since then. So the question here, Carl, is how's the market going to react to the Fed's comments, which are based already on fairly stale information? That'll be the most important thing that happens uh, in the latter yeah, half of the day uh, today. Carl, back to you. Yeah. All right, Bob, thank you. I'm Bob Pisani. Coming up in the next hour, don't miss our interview with Salesforce's Mark Benioff with Sarah Eisen live from Davos. And as we go to break, let's check out bonds. As we said, uh, tenure did get to 271 or so. It's uh, up from session lows, but that's still going to take you back to, say, the second week of April. We'll be right back. We're continuing our coverage of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Sarah Eisen's still there, and she has a lot more for us. Sarah. Hi, good morning, David. Clearly, the discussion centering around the global economy, inflation, what the world is going to look like geopolitically given the war in Ukraine. But, but also this morning, Texas is front and center in all of our minds. And of course, that horrific tragedy that has unfolded in the United States. The Commerce Secretary of the U.S., Gina Raimondo, is here. She is representing the Biden administration. I had a chance to speak with her and get the administration's first take and comments and what she's telling the global community about what happened here. It is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking and it's all too familiar. So my message to every member of Congress, to every governor, to every policymaker in America, stop and ask yourself, what are you going to do about this? You know, we, it's an untenable situation that we have innocent kids being gunned down in their schools. And we have the power to change that. This isn't good for America. It's certainly not good for business. Uh, every single American has an obligation to 
figure out how, what they can do to rid ourselves of the scourge of gun violence. And that last part about how it's bad for business as well, I, I asked her if there's a message there for CEOs, and she said, absolutely. I said, you don't usually see CEOs stand up to the gun lobby. She encouraged them to do so, said it's bad for our country. Uh, I will be speaking in the next hour, guys, with a, a CEO that does speak up on a lot of issues. In many ways, he's the poster child for sort of responsible capitalism or stakeholder capitalism and opining on issues. Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, coming up in the next hour of Squawk on the Street. Carl, for now, back to you. All right. Busy week for you, Sarah. Appreciate that, Sarah Eisen and Davos. Uh, take a look at the markets here. As we said, Dow's aiming for four straight days, uh, the longest streak in a couple of months here, currently up about 50 points. We'll be right back. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.